recently, uh, July the 20th, was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. Those of you who are, are keeping up with uh, space and astronauts and, and uh, the, the moon landing, all of that, uh, you, you remember that, that day. And on that historic day, Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin uh, took that one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Well, besides putting a man on the moon, the mission of Apollo 11 included collecting some samples uh, to take back to Earth and conduct uh, wind and soil experiments or dust experiment, whatever it is up there, uh, and as well as to take some pictures and just get a, an overall. Can you imagine going to the moon and of all the things of to do on the like all you're not going back next Saturday, so you you got to get it all done uh, while you're there. Uh, but uh, how much can you do? And, and uh, just amazing uh, to imagine someone standing on the moon. One of the things that they did while they were up there was uh, leaving behind a Goodwill disc. Is anybody familiar with the Goodwill disc? Raise your hand. I was not until I found... Oh, Garrett, you are? Okay, Garrett is. He is more well-read than I am. But uh, I, just, I just... You were alive then. Well, there, there's an advantage. Okay. Uh, I was I was yet to be the the uh, I I stumbled across this accidentally. I was just uh, did a just a, a a search for something completely seemingly unrelated, and this popped up and and it just fits so perfectly. And I and I thought you know this is uh, what a, what an interesting story, and I just had to include it. Uh, the the uh, Goodwill disc was a a kind of a capsule, if you will, of messages from uh, Earth's leaders, you know, thinking about uh, if, there, if there's a possibility of uh, people out there in other places, uh, the people of Earth send greetings to you. Uh, around the outside of it, uh, it read, Goodwill messages from around the world brought to the moon by the astronauts of Apollo 11. And around the rim is the statement from planet Earth, July 1969. I hope the aliens can read English because that's, the, that's what we wrote it in. And that's how it is. But inside this Goodwill disc were 70-plus messages from leaders uh, from around the world. Most of them spoke of congratulations to the American astronauts for uh, this great accomplishment. Uh, many of them, if not all of them, uh, mentioned hope and uh, for peace, uh, for progress, and for the prosperity of mankind. One of the messages from the president of Vietnam I thought was was quite good, and I wanted to share that with you. He, this is not all of his message, but he wrote this. This memorable feat should bring to mankind both a, a sense of pride and humility. Pride because human beings, by their intelligence and perseverance, are now able to get beyond this earth to which they seem to be bound. Humility because the quarrels which divide men on the earth look so petty in the context of our vast universe. He goes on, in this historical event, we prayerfully hope that the ingenuity and intelligence which God endows to men will lead toward increasing progress and brotherhood and the widening of human horizon. We are therefore very happy that the first message deposited by the brave American astronauts of Apollo 11 on the moon is a message of peace for all mankind and from all mankind in which the Vietnamese people fully concur. So I thought about it for a little bit, and I wonder if you have, have ever thought about it. Maybe only Garrett has, because he's the only one that knew about this. But if you had been given the opportunity to leave a message on the moon, what would it be? And I thought about that just for a little bit. Who, well, first of all, who's going to read it? 
But uh, it, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty high honor to be able to, of only 70, uh, less than 80 people that, that put their, their, their words up on the moon. And I thought about that for a little bit. Uh, what would my message be? Well, one of the other uh, messengers that, le- that was able to include a message in this, in this capsule was the Pope, Pope uh, Paul VI. And he was given uh, this opportunity and he chose to send the words of Psalm 8. And that's why I bring this to your attention this morning. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name. In all the earth you have set your glory above the heavens. And instead of showing pride for American accomplishment or for human achievement, he used the words of David that speak of man's smallness within the enormity of God's creation. I thought that was quite appropriate to, uh, for these words to include. This psalm, as uh, Derek Kidner writes, is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be. It celebrates the glory and grace of God, rehearses who He is and what He's done, and relates us and our world to Him. And this is the first of the psalms in order that is, uh, is this, this type of psalm, this effective praise and, and God-giving glory. Uh, we have the words of Psalm 8. Very quickly, I'll summarize it for you, and then we'll walk through it and, and see uh, what, what the psalmist is trying to say here. But when the psalmist considers the wonders of God's creation, I wonder if he had written this at night, because he talks about seeing the moon and the stars. But when he considers the wonders of God's creation, he recognizes his privileged spot in it, the privileged place that God has placed him within creation, and, it, and he turns to God in humility and praise. That's, why, that's where we get the words uh, to Psalm 8. He praises God for His majestic name throughout the universe. He praises God for His power and might. And He praises God for His gracious care towards mankind. We will kind of break those three apart in our, in our time together this morning. So in verse number 1, we see just over all of it, uh, and we see at the very end in verse number 9, it's, it's the bookend, the exact same words. And so we have this, this, uh, this, uh, this self-contained psalm beginning and ending with praise. And it is praise for God's glorious name. It is praise for God's majestic or excellent name. It's not necessarily what God's name is, but the revealed character of who God is. God's name speaks of both who God is and what God has done. This is, the, this is the theme of the whole psalm. Praise to who God is and for what God has done. Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 5 is, is, a, is a helpful passage to understand this idea of the name of the Lord. In fact, God proclaims His name. It says in Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when God proclaims His own name, He doesn't just say, my name is Yahweh or Elohim or, or, or uh, I am. He says what He is, who His 
what his nature is. He is a merciful and gracious God. He is one abounding in faithfulness and chesed. He is uh, one who uh, forgives and one who is gracious towards, uh, towards, uh, towards the people of his, uh, of his covenant. And this God that David refers to, he says, is our Lord. Now, if you look very carefully in, your, in the text there, you see at the very beginning, it says, O Lord, our Lord, but the two Lords are written a little differently. The first Lord has all caps, and the second Lord is, uh, is just how we would normally see it. Whenever we read in our English Bibles the word Lord, and it's all caps, that is God's name. That is Yahweh. Okay, and so when he is saying, O Lord, all caps, he's saying, O Yahweh, he's, he's addressing God. But in the second phrase, our Lord, he's not saying, O Yahweh, our Yahweh, he is saying, O Yahweh, our Lord, our ruler, our master, you are our boss. Effectively, this whole first phrase, he's saying, O Yahweh, our ruler and master, the majesty of who you are is revealed throughout the whole earth. And, and notice it's a personal thing. You are the God of the universe, and you are my master. You are my Lord. O oh, Lord, our Lord. It's very similar to the words of Psalm 48 in verse 14. It says, this is God, our God, forever and ever. We get to serve and know the God of the universe. It's an amazing, amazing privilege. And in the next few lines, David praises this God, this, O Lord, our Lord, for three things that God has done. We see number one in verse number one, the second one is in verse number two, and then the last one is in verses three through eight. God has set his glory above the heavens, he has established strength, and then he has made man. So let's look at these three bases for uh, God's praise. Number one is praise for God's uncontainable glory in the heavens. We see that in verse 1b. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. It's higher than the heavens. It's higher than the skies. The, the, the New American Standard uh, phrases it, you have displayed your splendor above the heavens. You have, you have made it manifest higher than even the heavens. Psalm 72 and verse 19 says, Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And yet, the earth cannot contain all of the glory of God. It goes beyond that and reaches above the heavens. John Calvin wrote that as if the psalmist were saying that the earth is too small to contain the glory, of God, uh, the glory or the wonderful manifestations of the character and perfections of God. It goes beyond those things. And the psalmist is, is reaching outside of earth and seeing the stars and the moon and, 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 and that which goes beyond into the heavens and saying your glory is above all of those things. The Puritan writer Matthew Henry says, Whereas we on this earth only hear God's excellent name and praise that, the angels and blessed spirits above see His glory and praise that. And yet, He is exalted far above even their blessing and praise. And so David praises God for His 
uncontainable, his overwhelming glory that fills up heaven and overflows into above into the into the places that are above the heavens. Number two, and they kind of progress as they work their way down. Now, the second basis for David's praise is God's unmatched power on the earth. We see it in verse number two. It says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. He praises God here for his power and his might. But the way that he says it is, is, is particularly important because he's speaking of God's power in reference to human weakness. Some understand these, these words here out of the mouths of babies and infants to be not specifically literal babies, but uh, speaking of God's people, God's, uh, of, of Israel, in relation to the mighty Gentile world. How Israel was so small and helpless uh, compared to the rest of the nations. Uh, other people would understand this to be actual babies uh, out of the mouths of babies and infants. Now, if you, if you can turn quickly, keep your place in Psalm 8, but I want you to go to Matthew 21. I know you're very familiar with where Matthew is, but Matthew chapter 21 and verse 14, Jesus himself refers to these words, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have, uh, you have established strength because of your foes. In, in a quoting, uh, he quotes this to the Pharisees. This strength that God establishes is so powerful that even though it comes from the mouths of babies and infants, it silences his enemies. So God uses the weakness of man to silence those who oppose him. So Matthew in uh, chapter 21 and verse number 14 uh, Jesus is uh, cleansing the temple, and uh, he in verse number twelve it begins. He was he was uh, throwing the money changers out, and verse number fourteen begins. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, "Hosanna to the Son of David!" they were indignant, and they said to him, "Do you hear what these are saying?" And Jesus said to him, "Yes. Have you never read?" Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus recalls the words of Psalm 9, rehearses them in the ears of these enemies of Jesus. They're very mad that he's thrown people out of the temple. He says, uh, my house shall be called a prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. He's accused them. They're very angry with him. And then they hear these children praising him for what he's done. Hosanna to the son of David. And they say, do you hear what these children are doing? probably trying to say, do you see how you've caused them to blaspheme and how you've caused them to go astray? And he says, haven't you ever read? And then he quotes our passage from Psalm 8, that out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established, and notice what Jesus says there, praise. Now, if you go back to chapter eight, Psalm 8, we see that the word praise is not used. The word strength is used, and they are very much related. Jesus is quoting here from the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Psalms. But I want you to notice three things from what Jesus is saying here. First of all, he is equating uh, this to the praise of actual children. Jesus recognized this as the praise of, of children, of, of the weak and the insignificant in society. But number two, Jesus equated strength with praise, specifically strength, this uh, praise that is attributing uh, God's strength through song. And number three, Jesus understands these words to mean 
to speak of himself. And that's, that's important. We'll get to that a little, a little bit more why in just a moment. But Jesus recognized, can you think about it? Jesus would go to the synagogue for 33 years and sing these psalms with the, the nation of Israel in these, in, these, uh, these temple, or in these synagogue worship times, and they would sing Psalm 8, and he knew this is speaking of me. Because God uses insignificant mouths to reveal his awesome glory. He uses insignificant people, whether they be actual babies or whether they be foolish and ignorant or small and weak people like a nation of Israel compared to the mighty nations surrounding them. God establishes strength through human Weakness. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in 1 Corinthians and uh, chapter number 1 and verse 27. I do want to read that to you. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse uh, 27. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the foolishness of preaching. And he goes in verse number 27, he says, um, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, th- to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. All of this is to uh, one purpose, to bring praise and honor to the name of God alone. This, uh, this confession here, uh, this acknowledgement of, that David is, is saying of man's insignificance now leads him into the third and largest basis for his praise. Mo- up to this point, each basis has been just a line or two, and now the, the bulk of his psalm is, uh, is for this third reason. It's praise to God for his gracious care towards mankind in creation. He begins in verse number three, you have made man. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for. He says, when I look up at the sky, when I consider your heavens, when I consider your work, the the work of your fingers, when I consider the moon and the stars which you have set in place, acknowledging that All of this is God's work. All of this is what God has done. Notice what happens to him. It makes him think about his own self. When I consider the heavens, I think about me. But not in the way that leads to arrogance and to pride and to boasting in oneself and how wonderful and how strong I am. Rather, he sees it another way. He says, it leads me to humility and praise. It makes me consider who I am in all of this. And I walk around and I, and I, and I think I'm hot stuff. I'm the king of Israel or, or, or whatever he may have been at the time. Uh, when I, but when I look up at the sky at night and I see the stars and I see the moon out there, when I, when I think about the creation that is all around me and that is above me and that is beyond anything I've ever seen with my own eyes, who am I? What is man that you think about him? that you pay thought to man. Why should you give man such special attention and honor? We're just another part of your awesome creation, a very small part, and the only rebellious part. And yet you pay so much attention to mankind. Why do you remember him? Or or why do you continually think on him? 
He's, it, it, when, he, when, it, when it says, though, that he remembers man, it's, it's not saying that, that, that God doesn't forget about him, but it's implying something more. As, uh, as uh, one, man, uh, uh, one writer uh, explains that God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object of his memory. By the fact that knowing that God remembers me is also an acknowledgement that God is moving towards that which he remembers. So if God remembers me, I'm saying God is moving towards me. God cares about me and God pays attention to me. But not only that, he says, the son of man that you care for him. Who, who am I that you would do such things, such wonderful things? I am a small little speck in, in the part of your creation and living on this tiny planet in the, in the corner of the galaxy and you pay attention to me. Now this psalm would be, would be sung by covenant worshipers. This song would have been, been sung by people who, who worship the true God, but they're not singing about themselves only. They're singing about God's common grace to all who bear his image. All mankind. And David is acknowledging that man is just a part of God's creation, just as the sun and moon and stars are, yet... God has given mankind special favor above all of his creation. He says three things, and I want you to notice these three things because we're, I want to take you to one other place in Hebrews, and I want you to be able to see those three things there as well. He says that man has been made a little lower than the heavenly beings. He says that you have crowned him with glory and honor. And he says that you have given him dominion over the, the rest of creation. He summarizes it another way, saying, putting all things under his feet. And he goes on to embellish that. It's, it's, it's all the animals, it's all the birds of the sky, it's all the, peop- it's all the fish in the sea, and everything else in between. You have given man dominion over these things. You've given man the ruler over all of this. And John Calvin again describes this special favor that God manifests towards mankind as the brightest mirror in which we can behold his glory. As we see how God how God blesses mankind, not just, not just his own people, but all people in this way. Uh, it, is a, it is a bright mirror to behold the glory of God. Now in this psalm, we, we see the psalmist is reflecting on the, the beauty and the order of God's creation, but specifically man's privileged position within that creation. Not just how wonderful they, the things are, but then in awe of the fact of where I stand in relation to the rest of creation. We see in verses number 3 through 7, we see uh, creation. Uh, we see Genesis 1 through 2. If you'd like to do some extra work, uh, you can read Genesis 1 through 2 and see how they relate to verses 3 through 7. We see him speak of creation. We see him speaking of man's dominion and man's privilege over it. But we also cannot escape that there's Genesis 3 is present here. Genesis 3, the fall of man, because we speak, we speak of God's enemies. These people whom God has given dominion over the earth are his enemies, and those who are his foes and who would uh, seek vengeance against him. But, but not only does the psalm reflect on what God has done in the past, it also points us, the readers, to what God will do. It's past tense for the psalmist, but it's, it's future tense. Oh, I'm sorry, it's, pa- it's future tense for what, from the psalmist's perspective, but when we look at it, it's also another past tense thing because David may or may not have been thinking about one who would come and fulfill these things. He may or may not have been thinking about the Messiah who would perfectly fulfill these things, but those who came after the cross, 
who came after Jesus definitely saw the parallel. I'd like for you to turn to Hebrews chapter number 2, please. Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, if you want to keep your spot here, I don't know if we'll come back, but you should be able to, uh, to, to remember if we do have any, any comment to say on that. But Hebrews chapter 2, and it's the first 10 verses, but we won't read all of them. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, uh, recognizes Jesus as the ideal worshiper. He is the man who fulfills all of Psalm 8. All right, notice in, uh, in verse number, uh, I'd like you to read all of 10 verses at some time, but for our sake of time, we won't do that right now. Uh, so let's just pick it up in verse number um, 5. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Did you catch those three statements from Psalm, from Psalm 8? And, and really, we see those, those statements in the, in the citation here, beginning in 6, 7, and 8. We see the three statements being mentioned there. And then the, and then the writer of Hebrews connects them to Jesus Christ. He says there in verses 7 and 9 that uh, he was made a little lower than the angels. Uh, but, but then again, we see it in uh, verse number 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Uh, look at verse uh, 7 again. He says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Look at verse 9. Uh, so that, uh, I lost my spot, but we see, uh, uh, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And then he says, all things have been put under his feet. Or uh, in, in, in the psalm, when he quotes the psalm here, he, he, he skips that one line and just puts in everything in subjection under his feet. And then he shows, he says, and all these things will be put under his feet. in the coming day. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Again, it's a quote back to Psalm number 8. So David is sitting there, I imagine him sitting out in the field somewhere and looking up at the sky. It's a bright light. It's a bright sky, a starry-filled sky, and he begins to think about all the things that God has made. And as David beholds these wonders of creation in the night sky, and he considers God's mighty power in and over man's weakness, and God's gracious, condescending care for mankind, he's not led to pride. He doesn't walk away arrogant, head held high, boasting in how wonderful man is, but rather it leads him to humility praise. This psalm, unlike the psalm of lament, as we looked at last week, which may or may not personally, you might not personally identify with a lament, this psalm, any believer can reflect on the glory of God. Any believer can can praise God at any time. Praise is always timely. Praise is always appropriate. Now, an unbeliever can look at the same creation and not see the glory of God. But those who have, uh, have been op- their, their blinded eyes have been opened by the grace of God should be able to see the mighty hand of God 
in his creation. And with that, use that as, 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 as fuel to praise and to worship the creator God. So, as we behold God's creation, let's make sure that we are taking in the wonder of God's creation. That we're not just letting these things go by. Observe the things that God has done around you. Open your eyes to the beauty of God's creation. Then meditate and think about the God who made those things. Think about the God who made you. And, what, and then be overwhelmed by the magnitude the significance, not only of God's creation, but the order in which he has placed you and me. What has God done for you? What grace has he shown to you? How has God revealed his glory to you? And then let praise overflow as we consider his glory and his gracious care for us. This psalm here is, enables us as worshipers. The ESV study Bible has a note there. It says it enables us to embrace dignity and seek to live worthy of it. So as we read these words, as we reflect on them, as we go out into our, into our lives and as we behold nature, maybe tonight as you look up at the sky or as you look at other parts of God's creation and, and you think of what God has done around you and then what God has done in you and through you and for you, let that fuel the praise. Let us consider who God is. And let, and let us consider what God has done. And let our praise overflow as we reflect on who He is and who we are in the light of His glory. And then be able to turn to Him and say with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. 